My name is Ryan Birds, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Does college lead Christians astray? Is abortion really the thing that drives most evangelicals to the voting booth? Are most members of the black church actually politically liberal in their social outlook? Maybe those are interesting questions to you. Maybe you think you know the answers to them. I sure thought that I knew the answers to them, but I've recently been proven wrong by an excellent book called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. It's by Ryan Burge. Now, Ryan Burge is one of my all-time favorite Twitter followers because he is so interesting. Not only is he a professor at Eastern Illinois University, he has become probably the leading sociologist in American religion and politics and how those two things intersect. And on Twitter, he's always posting all these fascinating graphs that often prove me wrong. That things that I thought were true, he shows, based on the best data, the best research out there, he shows that I was wrong. Ryan is also a pastor. He's a committed Christian. And so he's an interesting guy to talk to on these topics because he's not really a tribalist. I mean, he's been quoted all over, whether it's the New York Times or the Religious News Service. His work is in every major newspaper because he's starting a lot of interesting discussions. And so I'm excited for you to hear from him because I think what you'll discover is that he's the kind of guy who lets the data drive his conclusions. He's the kind of guy who doesn't come in and say, this is what I want to be true and I'm going to make it look like it's true. He's the kind of guy who says, no, let's just see where the numbers go and where they go in a lot of ways might surprise you so buckle up this is a fun spicy conversation and i suspect one of your sacred cows might even get slaughtered and if you're like me you'll think that's kind of fun and interesting let's hop in patrick great to connect See you via Zoom, not in person, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been fun connecting with you on Twitter various times. You're one of my rare alerts. I get to see all of your tweets. (laughs) I only retweet the ones that are kind of uh, spicy, though. Like I try to have a mix of like, well, I'm going to poke the bear today. And tomorrow I'm just going to like, I have like filler tweets, you know, filler tweets, but we know the ones you really want to do. I love doing uh, the spicy ones. Yeah. <laughs> the ones I really want to do don't ever go out. They're the ones I look at. I write them all out and I stare at the graph and go, do I really want to do this today? And then I go, no. I'm okay. Today. I would like those sent to my DM <laughs> and I will do them for you. I'll say unknown source claims. <laughs> I have a friend who's like, I have 268 draft tweets that are just sitting there in my box and I'm just scared to send any of them out. Oh, that's hilarious. And I'm like, I'm not to that level. I, sometimes I'll like schedule tweets with tweet deck and stuff. And then I forget that I actually scheduled them. 
And all of a sudden I get all this engagement and I'm like, oh, I'm not ready for this engagement right now. Like I'm not in the right spot. <laughs> That's called wisdom, discernment. I like that. And you know, you're a pastor. You got to be thoughtful about what you... And so I'm actually really curious about this. You're a pastor of a rural church. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Small rural church. So yep. do they have any awareness of what you're doing outside, like your Twitter account, the things you're talking about? You know, I'm going to make some assumptions that a smaller rural church you know, might lean a little more conservative, might not like some of the things. Not, I'm not saying you're not conservative. What I am saying is that you say some things that definitely debunk some maybe conservative myths. Like, how do they respond to that? Are they on board with you? They not know what you're doing? I've never been asked that question before. So cool. That's great. I think a lot of them don't fully grasp like who I am and what I do. You know, like they don't like fully understand like what I'm up to. You know, because it's hard to like describe, like, I'm big on Twitter and I, you know, like I go to a podcast. <laughs> like, they're like, what's a podcast and what's Twitter? Like, they don't understand like the mediums I use. Um, so it's kind of, it's like when you go to a foreign country and someone's like, that guy's really famous. And you're like, I don't know him. That's kind of like how it is in my congregation. They know I'm doing cool stuff. And like I tell them, I'm going to be the New York Times, or the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal. Like, they understand that stuff, but I don't think they fully understand like what I do. I mean, they're like the second book's dedicated to them. You know, the members of, of First Baptist Church. Yeah. They're an old school mainline church and that they're right of center politically, but not like Trumpers, like yeah. Mitt Romney type folk who are like, honestly, like where I find a lot of comfort. And that's actually my favorite audience is like people who are slightly right of center because they'll listen to me, you know, say things that say like, Ooh, you know, like evangelicals went crazy on this. And what about this? It's the people on the edges that really give me the most grief, like the far leftists and the far rightists, the ones who I really don't like talking to because they're so absolutionist about I'm right. You're wrong. I only want to look at data that backs up my opinion and it makes the other side look bad. So my congregation is just, I think they're just happy to have me around because if I left, we probably would close at this point. So they kind of give me a wide berth to do whatever I want to do. And I think they appreciate the fact that when I preach, I'm not like an old school, like Baptist, like, you know, pound the pulpit, yell at them. I talk about sociology and history and culture and identity. And, you know, I try to bring in some of that social background and kind of give them a different idea of things. So I love two things you just said. One is I totally agree. The dogmatism of the far right and the far left is very, very hard to interact with because it's not a conversation. It's about orthodoxy and heresy. And if you can't be orthodox and you're out of the room. But I also love, though, is that your story you're sharing right now presses back against, I think, a lot of almost the elitist myths that we have about people who live in rural communities that they're not intelligent or they're not wise or they don't have anything to offer the mind. You say, well, I'm here talking about sociology and history and culture, and they're really engaged with this, which fits. I mean, I don't live in a rural community, but we do have a lot of people who come in from rural communities. And growing up in a city, I had a lot of assumptions about people living in rural communities, and very quickly those disappear because I realized these are some of the smartest, wisest people. And I'm in a college town, so I know a lot of very educated people who are not actually very smart <laughs> or very wise. And so I just love your story saying, no, we totally got this wrong on one level. These are great people who you'd really love having a conversation with. Oh, they're, they're tr I didn't have to ask them to get a vaccine. They got it. Like we didn't even fight about it. <laughs> like we took the winter off, you know, like when COVID got really bad yeah. and the vaccine started rolling out and we came back like in February or March, I said, could you, you know, raise your hand if you've had the vaccine. I think our vaccination rate the first day was over 90%. So, <laughs> okay. First of all, I love you actually asked that question. I was, we, we were doing outdoor services at the time, uh, as well as indoor. We had both it's just kind of options for people. And I jokingly in a sermon asked everybody, I was like, raise your hand if you got the vaccine. And I really quickly said, actually, no, don't do that. I'm just joking. But like, three people kind of did it. I go, no, we're not going to do that. I want us all to like each other by the end of this. And my church is all 80 year old people. And yes, up and so they're all at risk. 
Yeah, they're not stupid. They know, you know, like, and they're not, like, again, they're not MAGA Trumpers. They're like old school Republicans, like, who just don't like taxes. And we're a mainline church, though, right? We're very kind of proud of the fact that we're a mainline church. We're not evangelical. And, mm. you know, my congregation was very clear. They've had a lot of problems when they hired ex Southern Baptist pastors to come to their church. Like, they used to be the church where people, pastors who got divorced, Southern Baptist pastors who got divorced would be their pastor because you couldn't, you know, be divorced in Southern Baptist church. They were happy when I came in and said, listen, I'm, you know, loud and proud. I'm not an evangelical, right? I don't preach from evangelical worldview. I say I'm evangelical sympathetic because I grew up evangelical. So I still understand the worldview and I don't hate it. Like I think a lot of academics hate evangelicalism. I don't hate it. I think there's a lot of things wrong with it, but I also think there's something wrong with the mainline too. There's something wrong with atheists too. Well, I wanted to ask you this question because I didn't know this and this is why it's fun to talk. So you would not self-identify as evangelical. I say I'm evangelical sympathetic. That's what I said. <laughs> I was the Gospel Coalition debate two days ago, and they asked me what I was. And I said, I'm evangelical sympathetic, which means I'm not one of these people who says like conservatives are evil and the devil. Actually, I think I'm pretty conservative on a couple of things. Putting me in space is really hard because in academia, I'm definitely to the right of the average academic. But if you put me like in the evangelical world, I'm definitely to the left of the average evangelical. My position is I vote for Democrats Almost all the time, not all the time, but almost all the time. But I would vote for Republican if it was a certain kind of Republican, right? Interesting. I like Mitt Romney a lot. So you're a Mormon. Uh, <laughs> listen, I'll tell you a story. Mormons love hearing me tweet about Mormons. Like anytime like I put a, a graph and it doesn't have Mormons on it, the first question is, where's the Mormons? Like I swear. they just <laughs> Give like, me the LDS going, people. Yeah. Like they're like, please talk about us. We really matter. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, you do, but you're 1% of the population. So like check your privilege, right? We're not going to talk about it today, but in the book, one of the myths is we're biased towards Christians. I'm not biased towards Christians. I'm biased towards big numbers. <laughs> and when you're 1% of the population, I can't do a survey with you. Like, that doesn't work that way. That's so interesting. So when you say that you're not evangelical, but evangelical sympathetic, I want to ask a question around why you're not evangelical. So there's two questions here. One is history. Like, I've yeah. never considered myself an evangelical, so, so nothing's really changed. And then the second question for that is, now I realize there's lots of different definitions of evangelicalism, and by offering this one, I'm not saying this is the true one. I'm just curious. Obviously, people will bring up Bevington's quadrilateral, and I'm curious, is there an aspect of the quadrilateral that you say, yeah, there's just this thing on here I disagree with? So let's start with just history. Have you ever been an evangelical? Yeah, I grew up Southern Baptist. I mean, I was like in it to win it, man. I went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, youth group, world changers. I went to summer camp. I mean, I was convinced, right? Like I was right and you're wrong. And I missed that. Like, I think there needs to be more written about like the evangelical nostalgia from like the 1990s. That's when I came of age in the 1990s. And like evangelicalism hit its peak in like 1993, right? Like that's when like 30% of Americans were evangelical in 1993. And that's when like purity culture was big, but CCM was huge in the 90s and the religious right was growing. Like I grew up in like really the kind of like, we're going to look back on American history and go, wow, that was like peak evangelical. Back in the days where if you were like a teen pop star, you had to pretend you weren't having sex and had exactly. Yeah. And there was crossovers, right? DC talk was still big in those days and, uh -huh. you know, six pence and all that stuff. But I got to the point where I think where I cannot say I'm evangelical is I'm certain of nothing. That's my operative condition in the world. Like I'm certain of nothing, whether it be statistics or Jesus or the Bible or whatever, I cannot, I'm physically, mentally, psychologically incapable of being as certain as lots of evangelicals are. First of all, do you want to be the third host of Truth Over Tribe? Because I think you just said something that we have repeated countless times. Now, I'm going to assume what you mean. What you are saying here is I'm not 100% certain about everything. There might be some things I feel 80% certainty mm -hmm. on or even 90%. A lot of things I'm going to go down to 20 or 30%, but there's nothing I'm going to give 100. That's exactly right. And I think it also goes up and down. Here, let me give you a Bourdain quote. Anthony Bourdain, who is my probably my <laughs> hero. 
he said, maybe that's enlightenment enough to know there is no final resting place in the mind, no moan of smug clarity. Perhaps wisdom is realizing how small I am and unwise and how far I have yet to go. That's me. Well, you know, there is no smug clarity for me. I can't be like, you know, like how Mark Driscoll was like so certain about what he believed. I saw that and ran the other way. I was like, that is not me. Like, I cannot say things like that because I don't believe them. And I almost felt for a long time, I went through like a crisis of why don't I believe as much as you do? Why can't my mind do what your mind does? Am I deficient or are you deficient? You know, like that's what I struggle with for a long time. I think at some point you get to the stage in your life, you come to peace with yourself. And for me, that peace was, I believe enough. And if that's not enough for you, that's your problem, not my problem. So accept me the way I am with my unbelief that goes up and down over time, because this is as good as you're going to get from me. And if I try to act like I'm certain, I'm going to be lying. And I'd rather be sincere and uncertain then lie to you about how much I believe something. Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, it's the whole, you know, I believe help my unbelief. And that, exactly. that is actually the situation in a real sense, all Christians are actually in. <laughs> that no one is as certain as they claim to be. Now, I'm curious, though, because now you've framed this almost temperamentally, you know, like mm -hmm. by personality, I have a lack of certainty. And I think there's some truth to that. You know, one reason I'm a terrible debater is I have this tendency of kind of seeing what the other side says. I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, which is the worst thing to do in a debate, right? You should be absolutely certain. You should only hit the points that you think are the strong points. You should never <laughs> admit your weaknesses. So I guess I want to ask, is this purely temperamental? Or do you think this is a Christian ethic, a Christian value to have epistemological humility? So epistemology, for our audience, that's a weird word, you know, knowing what you know. Like, how do you know things? And having humility about what I can or can't know. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I wish I went into psych literature more, but I think there's a predisposition for some people to be more certain and some people to be less certain. I think your mind is wired in some ways. And actually, I think Tony Miss is about that a lot, right? Like the idea of like, you can be challenged by new information. And there are lots of people who do not want to be challenged. And actually, when they hear something that does challenge them, they turn the other way and shut it down immediately because they don't want to rethink what's going on in their mind. And I think there's actually a lot of value in that. Like, I am who I am and I've always been who I'll always be. And like, this is who I am. But there's a value to consistency. I'm not saying it's worse than my position. Actually, I think in some ways it's better than my I wish. I wish. I used to pray to God when I was like 19, 20, 21 years old. I wish I believed more. I was just desperate to have a more foundational, firm, concrete belief in all the things of the scriptures. And I never got it. And I had to wrestle with what that was. And I always thought I was inferior. I don't think I'm inferior. I think I'm different. And I think the problem with evangelicalism is it does not accept the fact that people who doubt are different, not wrong. Yeah. And I think that's where I struggle with evangelicalism is I wish I was as sure of anything as some people are sure of the Bible or Donald Trump or whatever it is, I'm sure of nothing. And honestly, I think that's my greatest weakness and my greatest strength all at the same time. Hmm. It's incredibly difficult, but I don't do it on purpose. I do it because my brain works that way. And I think going into academia made it worse. The first thing you realize in grad school is how dumb you are and how little you know about the world and how to stay in your lane. That's the other thing. I, I don't talk theology because I'm not a theologian, right? Like I have a very basic theology. I'm a social scientist. If you want to go deep on, you know, polling methodology and how we measure things, I am literally an expert on those things. I am not an expert on Bible or epistemology, ontology, any of that stuff. So I stay in my lane and I let them handle those things over there. That is why I think I've been somewhat successful is because I refuse to fight the battle on your ground. I say, let's fight it on my ground. And if you want to talk about theology, that's fine. I'm going to tell you what the data says. And if that makes you mad, then get mad at the data. Don't get mad at me. It also lets me say things like, I'm not saying you're racist. The data says you're racist, which is the best thing ever, right? Because I'm, like, I'm not saying you're anti-immigrant. I'm saying 60% of Southern Baptists want to reduce legal immigration in this country by 50%. That seems pretty anti-immigrant to me. 
right? So now it's the ball's in your court, not mine, because I've just given you a data point that you have to wrestle with. You have no other choice to wrestle with it. And I'm not saying you're anti-immigrant. You're telling me you're anti-immigrant. So I'm just holding a mirror up to you. Well, see, I agree. I'm not laughing at the people you're arguing with. I'm afraid someone's going to hear something. I'm laughing at people who want to lower legal immigration. You and I probably actually share our positions on this issue from what I've read and seen, to be honest. I'm laughing more so at just the different mentalities of different kinds of people because two things. One, it's always interesting to me that experts, so credentialed experts like you, are always the most cautious people about speaking outside of their expertise because <laughs> they're like, well, I know how deep you can go into my thing and ergo, I know that I don't know enough about those things. Whereas the rest of us, people like me who are more generalist and have a, a mile wide, inch deep kind of thinking, you know, tend to wade a little further into the water than we should <laughs> and are often corrected by you. But why I was laughing at that is I love those kinds of stats that you were sharing, not because they're convenient or comfortable for me. I love them because I I love being proven wrong. And the reason I love being proven wrong is because if I'm not proven wrong and I am wrong, I'll just live in that wrongness. You know, I'm just going to be walking around as an idiot who doesn't know the truth about myself, about my culture, about my reality. And so every time I'm proven wrong, I learn something new. And that's the value of it. And I love that you started off your book kind of talking about this theme, the need to be open to being proven wrong on a topic. So I am curious. You said you're not certain about anything. Do you like being proven wrong? I love it. Oh man, there's nothing that gets me more excited than a good idea. Like that is to me is like, what is my life giving concept, right? Like that's what gets me up in the morning. I just tell my students, like when I teach research methods, I'm like, you're an archeologist, you know, like how Indiana Jones dug in the desert to find like relics and stuff. You're like digging through data to find something we've never seen before. And when you uncover it, you are bringing more knowledge to what we know about the world. And sometimes that reinforces what we know about the world, but sometimes that counteracts or, you know, changes the way we think about the world. And I'll give you a good example. There's always this debate that goes around about should churches be political? If you look at the data and surveys for a long time have said that the vast majority of Americans don't think churches should be political. They should keep politics and religion separate. You know, the law is that way too, right? But my buddy Paul did a survey where they asked, are you comfortable with the amount of political activity of your church? versus religion in general. And he found this really interesting thing, which is that most Americans are actually very comfortable with the amount of political engagement their church is involved with, but are not comfortable when other churches get politically involved, (laughs) which totally changes the way I think about this, right? Because then it goes into a whole different debate of like, you know, people hate Congress. Americans hate Congress. They get like 10% approval ratings. But if you ask them about their specific congressman, it's like 60, 70% approval. So it's not my person mucking up the works. It's everybody else who's causing all the problems. It's the same way when it comes to religion. My church is doing it right and every other church is doing it wrong. And I think that really changed my mind about how we think about church and, you know, the concept, right? It's all politics is local, right? And all, you know, religion and politics is local. I go to a church that does it right and you go to a church that does it wrong. You fix yourself. That's really the problem. I had no idea that was the case. It kind of makes sense of my personal experience as you're describing it. That's fascinating. I love being proven wrong as well. And that's actually one reason I loved your book where you go through 20 myths that Americans believe (laughs) about religion and politics in the United States. And while I didn't believe every single myth you had in there, there were at least seven that I did believe or at some point in my life did believe. And I loved your book because you debunked them so thoroughly. And so I thought it'd be really fun on the podcast for me to kind of drill you (laughs) through some of those myths, because I think our listeners are going to be the exact same camp I was in. They're going to believe some of these myths, not because anyone's a bad person. As you just said, you don't know what you don't know. If you don't have the data, how could you possibly know it? You're only going to base it off of your anecdotal experience. And that's where a lot of this comes from. So I want to start with one of the early chapters in your book. This is the myth that you debunked 
debunked. The myth is this, Donald Trump wasn't the choice of religiously devout Christians. I'm going to repeat it. Donald Trump wasn't the choice of religiously devout Christians. So I'm going to start with myself. One of the most influential books for me in probably the last 10 years was Tim Carney's Alienated America, which you directly address inside of the book. And I actually do have some pushback questions in here, so this will be a fun conversation. But one of the, his arguments is that amongst people who are devout, so we might say are attending church every week or every week plus, Donald Trump was not the choice in the primary. They were going to pick someone like Ted Cruz over Donald Trump. And he made the point in his book, it seems to me, that people who sell them went to church, never went to church. They were the ones who really elevated Trump. They're the ones who got him through the primary and got him the nomination. Now, there's a whole element that I'd love to discuss with you about in a little bit, which is that he talks about regionality being a part of it too, and I'm curious how that fits into things. Let's throw out Tim Carney for a second, and let's just start with this thing, because I have taught this. I've said this so many times that Donald Trump wasn't the choice. The real Christians didn't vote for Trump in the primary. Why am I wrong? Because the data says you're wrong, Patrick. That's the problem. <laughs> but here's what's funny. I use the exact same data that Tim Carney used in Alienated America. Literally, so the you exact think he was data. dishonest? Okay. I'm not going to say he's dishonest, but I'm saying he also didn't do the data analysis either. He offloaded that to someone else who then gave him the numbers that he put in his book because he's not a data analyst. I'm always wary whenever whoever does the data analysis is not the person writing the thing because there's this slippage that happens sometimes, right? Where you don't exactly know the point you're trying to drive towards. And I use the exact same data that they use. And I broke it down. They kind of bend it together. So like seldom, never, weekly, more than once a week. I said, let's take every attendance level, which goes never, seldom, yearly, monthly, weekly, more than once a week, right? So there's six categories. I said, let's look at each individually because there's enough people in the sample to do each individual. If you do that, what you see is Donald Trump was the favorite amongst never attenders, seldom attenders, yearly attenders, monthly attenders, and weekly attenders. That was the shocker for me. The only group that he did not win with are those who attend more than once a week, which are only about what, 10% of evangelicals, I think? I can't remember the number off the top of my head. It's a small number, though. And by the way, Cruz only won by like eight points amongst that group, while Trump was winning by 12 or 14 points in the other attendance groups. What Big Eva has done, elite evangelicals have done, they've created kind of this like facade where it's like, oh, we didn't vote for Donald Trump. But when he became the primary choice, we all just had to line up because we hate Democrats and they're baby killers and we don't like Hillary Clinton. So we had to vote for Trump. No, 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 no. You all liked Trump from the start. Okay, you preferred Donald Trump. And to me, that's the problem, though, because then you have to dig below that, which is why Cruz has evangelical bona fides like almost no candidate that we've had in the last 20 years. And Rubio is not bad either. Right. He's Catholic, but he also goes to an evangelical megachurch in Florida. Why would you not pick Rubio or Cruz? And I'll give you one good instance right now, because. Early on in the primary, Donald Trump came out hardline against immigration, right? We need to shut down all immigration from Muslim countries. And we need to stop all, you know, immigrants are racist and killers and all that kind of stuff. While Cruz and Rubio had actually worked with the Bush administration in 2008 on a pathway to citizenship for people who were here illegally, but hadn't broken any laws and wanted to become permanent citizens of this country. And guess what? That's capitulation. They liked the hardline anti-immigrant stuff. And that's a hard truth to grasp. That's a truth pill. You got to sit there and think about that for a second. Evangelicals do not like immigrants. Like the majority of evangelicals do not like illegal immigrants, but they also don't like legal immigration either. Okay, hold on. I want you to lean in there. I just want to make sure we didn't make a leap from you don't like immigration, even legal immigration, to you don't like immigrants. Those are two different things. So where did you get you don't because like immigrants? Because why would you be opposed to legal immigration if you don't like immigrants? Oh, there could be lots of reasons. So remember, this is coming from someone. We've done a podcast where we argued for let's have more yes. legal immigration. Let's have a pathway to citizenship. So that's where I'm coming from. But let me argue yeah. the other side. 
the other argument goes like this. I'm a working class blue collar guy. And when you bring these immigrants in, they come, they take mm. my job, they take my work. Now, whether or not that's it's true, not to the data, that's my perception. <laughs> I, I agree. It's not. But I'm going to say that's okay. my perception of reality. Right. And so the reason why I don't want more immigrants is because you're threatening my lifestyle, my way of life by allowing these people in. And I'm already barely making it. So how could you possibly do that? That does not sound to me like I don't like immigrants. It sounds like I don't like immigrants. But it also sounds like you're villainizing someone for your plight in life. And that's where I struggle. Like, so, so to, okay, so here's what's happened. Globalization has ruined the middle class in America. Like, that's just a statistical fact. We can talk all day about income inequality and how the rich are getting richer and the average American is making less money now adjusted for inflation than 40 years ago, which is an absolutely terrible, pernicious problem, right? But what's causing that? It's because our jobs are going overseas because they're doing it for five bucks an hour instead of 30 bucks an hour because they'll do it over there, right? So yeah. think about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Right. They both saw the same problem, which is the middle class is falling farther behind. And Trump blames it on immigration largely. Right. Says immigrants come and take your jobs. They're going overseas, blah, blah, blah. blah. And Bernie blames it on rich people. Because he also blamed it on China and offshoring. That's industry. true. I mean, just to be fair. But I mean, what I'm saying is, how can you stop that? Bernie Sanders says it's because rich people are taking too much money. Right. It's the rich who are bearing down on the poor people, not paying them more. It's all corporate greed and da, 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 all that stuff. They both saw the same problem. They had two completely different scapegoats for who the villain is. Right. Is it rich people or is it immigrants? I don't think that's a very good way forward. I don't think creating villains is a way that we move forward. Do I think rich people should be taxed more in this country? Absolutely, I do. Do we, I think we should have more immigration in this country? I absolutely do. But I'm also not a liberal. And by the way, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian right-wing organization, thinks we should have a ton more legal immigration in this country. Because if you want to grow GDP, it's really the only way to get there because Americans are not having that many babies anymore because it's too darn expensive to do so. I'm totally with you. We should have more immigrants. I mean, one of my big pushbacks with Donald Trump, and he's talking about the right kind of immigrants coming over, which I realized was very racially coded, is the irony that you're talking about bringing over secular Europeans who do not share our values and bringing them over into the United States and saying that's the kind of person we want. Whereas you can bring people from Central America, South America, Africa, who are largely Christian or even Islamic, who share many of the same social values that we have. And so actually, immigration is great if you want a traditional social values. It's one of the funny things. You know, I, I I would love if you could find this. I mean, I'd really be curious if there's a study out there that can actually show, because I'm still not convinced that not liking legal immigration equals not liking immigrants. I'm also not convinced that it doesn't have anything to do with that. I'm with you. That's a question I'd want to ask, but I would love to see a study that actually bears out the claim. Remember when Syria was going through a civil war and there were millions of, of refugees moving from Syria? What did the Republican Party say? We don't want those people coming here. And a lot of people on Facebook said, we don't want those people coming here. And then Ukraine got invaded. And you know what happened? America said, come on, come on over. What's the difference? Yeah, get them over. Describe to me the difference. I think one is because they're brown and one's because they're white. I can't believe I'm in the position of defending all this, but this is amazing. I think to be fair, it would be more like this. In Syria, Middle Eastern culture, they have associations with 9-11, with terrorists. I don't trust that we can vet whether or not someone we're bringing over has some sort of association with the terrorist organization. Now, am I saying that's not racially coded? Well, of course it is. And by the way, I was for bringing more Syrians over. I just don't know if it's white-brown as much as cultural differences that we're looking at. And it wasn't just us, by the way. It was Europeans who absolutely had zero interest in bringing Syrians over. And I think there's a question as to whether Europeans have the same racial hierarchy that is present in the United States because they didn't practice slavery the way we did. So you've actually brought up a really good point, which I love to make all the time, which is a lot of like liberal Americans think the problem with America is Christians are xenophobic. Most of Western Europe is completely secular at this point, and they did not want to welcome Syrian refugees. Oh, no. 
It's not religion that's doing it, folks. There's so many people in America like, we get rid of religion, we have a better place. I'm like, oh yeah, Western Europe's figured it all out. They got rid of religion, they got no xenophobia, no nationalism, no racism, no problems there because they got rid of religion. It solves all your problems. It's just a myth, which I didn't put in the book, but I should have. The idea that religion is causing this, I don't think it's religion that's causing this. I don't think it's about religion much anymore. I don't want to talk myself out of a job, obviously. <laughs> I don't think religion matters as much as we think as politics do. Oh, I agree. That's like actually a big shift in the way we think about political science now. We used to think about religion was like the first lens and politics was like downstream of that. So like you looked at the world through a theological worldview and then you voted based on your theological worldview. Now we know, and actually the data is becoming very clear on this last five or 10 years, is the opposite's true. You pick your church based on your partisanship. I saw someone on Facebook who was a very involved Christian, probably goes to church way more than I do. And she said, I can't find a single verse in the Bible that says we should welcome in refugees. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. You know, like, I don't think the Bible speaks crystally clear about that, but I can definitely tell you welcome the stranger shows up a couple times in the Old Testament. Not just a couple times, a couple times attached to the most profound command, which is I rescued you when you were foreigners in Egypt and brought you in, and so shall you treat other people. I mean, he attaches it to the Exodus. It's about as deep as you can get. But again, your partisanship says, I'm going to create blind spots, right? It's almost like you have a vision problem where you cannot see certain things because your mind does not want to be challenged. Do you want to be reinforced? And so what you do is you say, well, the Bible backs me up, even though it probably doesn't back you up on things like immigration, taxation, regulation, all those things, because it really doesn't speak with one voice. I mean, you know, we can get a discussion about first order issues like abortion, gay marriage, transgender versus second order issues like immigration, taxation, things like that. But no one's been able to answer this question for me definitively. If evangelicals vote because of a theological worldview, then why are they anti-taxation and for low regulation and really don't have a high view of immigration? Because those aren't first order biblical issues. Where do those ideas come from? I'm telling you where they come from. They come from partisanship, not religiosity. Now I'm playing devil's advocate as I do this. I Love think it. you could make a biblical case against taxation. You know, you go to Nehemiah 5, for example, where Nehemiah talks about taking lower taxes because they were oppressing the poor, right? In other words, there was this idea, and you can find it in other places too with the tax collection, that there's a way of taxation. Now, again, this is the ethical murky ground of are we taxing people in the same manner? You'd have to ask that question. I would have a harder time making a case around things like deregulation. It seems like an economic argument as well. I think on taxation, the Bible does not speak with one voice. And I think if anyone says it does, I think they're reading it in a very selective, interesting, partisan motivated way, not theologically motivated way. There's very little, I'm going to get myself in trouble with this. There's very little that the Bible is univocal on. It's a book that was written across literal centuries. <laughs> and as a result, it's dealing with all kinds of different social situations, historical situations. And so no shocker, you're going to have to improv. What does it look like to live in the kingdom of God in all these different circumstances? And I didn't have the myth that you just brought up, but I think it's so important, this idea that we put our politics as our first lens and our theology as a second one. And I wonder, and you probably don't have an answer to this, I wonder how often this has been the case. I mean, it's just the way Christians have been throughout history that we've always kind of put our political lens on first and then our kingdom lens? Or is this more a result of this weird merger that happened, especially in the 50s, but really throughout American history, of church and state, where people began to merge the two, and so they lost their kingdom theology. They lost this concept of, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is Philippians 3. There's a real tension and even antithesis at times between state and the kingdom of God, a different state, an alternative society. So I'm just curious, do you think that this is something that's been true of America since America's been America? Or is it something that's become true in the last, you know, 50 years that we've put the politics first? Maybe you don't have an answer to it. I'm just curious. No, I've got an answer to everything, Patrick. At least it's, <laughs> I'll try to throw together an answer. We mythologize American religion over time and kind of like nostalgize, not trying to work, but nostalgize it, right? Where we think it used to be much more religious and now we're much less religious. 
But if you actually, you know, kind of look, there's a great book by Finky and Stark called The Churching of America, yeah, I've read where it. they do this insane like data analysis, like looking back at like census records from like the 1600s and all this stuff. And they found that a third of all first births to women were less than nine months after they got married. So, you know, do the math there, right? So one third of all first births were people who were having sex before marriage. And if you look at church attendance rates in New England, right around 1650, 1700, they were less than 25% of people went to church every week in America. So we were never as religious as we think we were. We were actually always pretty much heathens. And I don't actually don't think the time that we live in now is actually fundamentally that different than it was 50, 100, or 200 years ago. Would you say that the 50s were the high watermark of American religiosity? And then we have these kind of dips of secularity, both in the time of the revolution and in the present. But the caveat to it is this. If you look at the data from the 50s, it wasn't dogmatic religion that was strong. It was just the idea of being religious. I think Harry Truman said, I want Americans to be religious. I just don't care what kind it is. Like, that's the kind (laughs) of religiosity we're talking about, like pluralistic religiosity, right? I don't care if you're a Jew or a Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. I just want you to be religious because it has this value in society. I think it was Eisenhower. It was definitely one of those 50s. Eisenhower, you're right. You're right. It was Eisenhower. But doesn't that kind of speak to the moment, though, that we're in? Like, can you imagine a Republican saying that today? Like, no way. I mean, now it's like you got to be Christian. We're a Christian country. I think what's turbocharged the problem we have is I think our two-party system ruins American religion and politics. Because like, if you live in Western Europe, you've got six or eight parties who are viable, right? I mean, in Germany, they have like nine parties in the parliament. So if you're, let's say you're evangelical, right? You're anti-abortion, but you're also like socialists on economic issues. So high taxation, a lot more government. There's a party for you. There's a party for you. In America, (laughs) there's nothing for you, right? There's no party for you. So you're forced to choose a side. And what we know is that people over time do not like to live lives of incongruence. So what they'll do is they'll start changing their viewpoints to match up with their partisanship. There's this great study done in California amongst Republican members of the General Assembly. For a long time, they were pro-choice until the Republican Party became super pro-life, and they all changed their minds over time because they had to align with the dogma of their current partisanship. So what we do is we sort of, that becomes our North Star, right? Partisanship becomes our North Star, and we realign everything in our lives to get behind that partisanship. That's not Christian, to align your life around partisanship. Oh, 1000%. But I'm starting to feel hopeless. Like maybe it's just the way we are. Like there's just no way around it. We're all going to be half-hearted followers, disciples of Jesus who have no ethic of the kingdom, no sense of citizenship in God's kingdom. That's our future. We're done. Wow, Patrick, you are just a ray of sunshine this morning. (laughs) Well, here's what's happened. Social media has basically been able to tell you what you should believe as a Republican or Democrat over and over and over again. And therefore, it's easier to become more one-sided and partisan. Listen, in the 1980s, late 1980s, which I think... I'm actually working on a book proposal where I argue the 1990s is when America lost its religion. In the late 1980s, if you look at mainline evangelical and Catholic churches, amongst weekly attenders, like 45% were Democrats, 45% Republicans in each of those traditions. It was like a perfect, like homogenous blend of like what American religion should be in my estimation. And now like 75% of evangelicals are Republicans. We got a monoculture now in evangelical churches. And by the way, one of the myths in the book is the mainline are liberals. They're not liberals. That's such a stupid oversimplification. Most mainline Protestants are actually right of center politically. There's actually much more political diversity in mainline churches than there are political diversity in evangelical churches. Yet the mainline went from 30 30% of America in 1972 to 10% of America today, and very quickly going to be 5% of America in the next 10 or 20 years because they're all 60 years old and up and are not having children anymore. So the diverse religious tradition in America is dying. The monoculture in American religion is doing very well and actually might be growing over time. That doesn't bum you out. I don't know what does. 
<laughs> well, it's really interesting because I'm having all kinds of cognitive dissonance right now. On one level, there's part of me that doesn't particularly mourn the, and I'm sorry, I know you're mainline pastors, and particularly mourn the decline of mainline churches. Whoa. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm also not particularly happy about the stats I've seen that suggest, like you just said, that Trump was great for evangelicals. You actually said Big Eva, Elite Eva. I think that was me. Like, I had this conception, and it was anecdotal. It's like, I did not know a pastor who voted for Trump in 2016. And we have 12 pastors on our staff. That shapes our perception of, okay, clearly the serious people around me didn't vote for Trump. And yet I look at your stats and I think, okay, there's something wrong here. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I want to change our subject to another really interesting thing that your book totally blew my mind on. It's about abortion, okay? Yeah. This is the myth. Abortion is the most important issue for evangelicals, okay? That's the myth, that abortion is the most important issue for evangelical voters. Now, again, I'm just going to come into this with my own experience. Ever since I was a Christian, all of the serious Christians around me had serious conversations about abortion. This was often the topic that was brought up, which, of course, would lead one to believe that this is the most important issue for evangelicals. And in our context, we actually had a partnership here with a local secular film festival. It was a really bizarre thing. They wrote it up in Christianity Today and the New York Times. It was a really cool project that we were able to work together despite having a lot of differences. But we started this project together where we were going to show uh, secular nonfiction films in churches that were controversial. And so we brought this film into our church that was about the people who do late-term abortions you know, which are illegal in most states. There's very few places you can get these. And we had a dialogue around it. And it was fascinating to watch how polarizing this was, not just for us as a church, that there were a lot of people who were really upset that we did this. <laughs> and in their group, they were very, very upset. Even though we were showing a film that defended their view, they were very upset they would even come into an evangelical church and do that because it was, in some sense, affirming us, <laughs> that we were okay. And so all of these experiences around me suggest that abortion is the issue. I mean, I've heard that a million times. So what's the true picture? Is abortion the most important issue for evangelical voters? 
No, 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 no. Can we just be honest here? Is Donald Trump as pro-life as everyone thinks he is? No, the answer is no. He's a New York liberal. Let's be honest. He even said he was pro-abortion before he ran for president. Also, yeah. he changed his mind. I mean, that's just a fact. Here's what I think about abortion. I think abortion has become an easy way to stop the conversation when someone asks you who you voted for and you said Trump. Because you can say, I don't want people to kill babies, which, hey, you might believe that. I don't disagree with the fact you don't want people to kill babies. But the data says you probably don't believe that because only a third of evangelicals want to make abortion completely illegal in this country. All right, hold on. Hit that again. A third of people want to make it completely illegal. What about people who give like very small percentage, right? You know, like maybe they would give the if you were raped or if it was incest. So there's yeah. still we're talking they want 99 percent of the abortions banned. There's just this tiny little percentage they'll, they'll make exceptions. To. Sure. But 55% of Americans want abortion as a choice, including 25% of white evangelicals. How much was that? 55% of Americans in general want abortion allowed as a choice, like basically being like, if you want to get an abortion, we don't care. And 25% of evangelicals agree with that statement. And this is like a point I really want to make with abortion. It's not like it's a bimodal distribution. Right? There's everyone's on stacked on one side and everyone's stacked on the other side. And there's nobody in the middle. Actually, I think the modal position on abortion is we don't like it, but we don't want to make it illegal. And there's tons of data that backs this up, by the way. Trisha Bruce from Notre Dame did these interviews, these in-depth interviews with people about abortion and ask them, you know, what do you feel about this? And she actually said, you do realize you're contradicting yourself on abortion right now. And they go, yeah, we know. We don't have a consistent view on abortion. It's become sort of like a totem for all these other things that go along with being a Republican because it's a conversation stopper. Because if you tell me I'm anti-abortion, I voted for Trump because I'm anti-abortion, what do I do with that? How do I move on from that conversation? What do I say? You know, I'm like, when you start talking about conception and life and, you know, sperms and eggs and stuff, I'm not having that conversation. You just go on to something else. But if you said to me, I'm voting for Donald Trump because I want fewer immigrants to this country, I'm going to come at you. You know, like we're going to have a conversation about why I think you're wrong and you might be xenophobic and you possibly are racist because you don't want more immigrants to this country. See, that's the difference is abortion stops the conversation. Immigration actually continues the conversation, but in a very kind of caustic, terrible way. So I think white evangelicals have used abortion as sort of like a shield to say, I vote for Republicans because of abortion. I don't think at the end of the day, and by the way, I've done analysis on this PRI data. They ask, is abortion a deal breaker for you? When it comes to voting, only 20% of white evangelicals said, yes, it's a deal breaker. Only 20%. So what do you do with that? How do you make sense of that? To me, it's a constellation of issues that matter to them. But really, the thing that matters to them the most is they're not Democrats. Like, that's why white evangelicals vote for Republicans, because they're not. It's called negative partisanship, by the way. You're not voting for someone. You're voting against someone else. And I think at the end of the day, the Republicans run a guy who's mush on abortion, right? Who's like, eh. And they would still vote for him. Why do evangelicals still vote for him? I don't know about in the primary, but definitely in the general, they would still vote for him because at the end of the day, they're not Democrats. And Democrats apparently want to kill babies by the millions in this country. And that's awful. So I think it's become a way to avoid the bigger conversation of why you're a Republican, you know, where that comes from and what that means, because that's a tough conversation. It is a tough conversation. I agree. I think there's a good critique here saying this can become totemic. It is a way of shutting down conversation. I've experienced that personally. It's like, you know, you're having a good conversation with someone as well, abortion. And it's like, okay, well, now we've hung up the phone, right? Mm-hmm. And this is coming from a guy who would not identify as a Republican or a Democrat <laughs> at all. Oh, come on. Pick a side, Patrick. Come on. That's a fun argument I get into a lot. I will not be pinned down. Just to make sure I'm tracking with your position and make sure our audience is going with this. Your point here isn't that there are not evangelicals who are very against abortion. There are. Your point is that when you think about abortion, it's a sliding scale. You have people who say, I'm against 
all abortions, make them all legal. And you'd have people who say, hey, let's make some exceptions for rape and incest, and maybe if the mother will die. And you'll have other people who say, okay, let's make a few more exceptions, or hey, I don't want to have... So there's a sliding scale of steps that people can take. And your point is that in the evangelical church, you have people at every level in large numbers. Bill Clinton said, we want to make abortion safe, legal, and rare. And that's where most people fall on abortion, including lots of evangelicals. Yes, it's not about most people to, you know, the question's for evangelicals though, right? Yeah. I think even amongst evangelicals, the the hardline, hardline people, the problem is- They're not the majority. That's right. But they're louder than everyone else. Extreme opinions are the loudest opinions in American discourse. And this is a terrible analogy, but I'll make it. I don't want to see cows being slaughtered, but I love hamburgers, right? And if I saw cows being slaughtered, it might change my mind about hamburgers. So I intentionally don't watch videos of cows being slaughtered because I like to eat hamburgers. I think most Americans say, I don't like abortion, but I don't want to see one being done. I don't want to see the pictures, you know, they hold up in the protests with the fetuses and all that. So I don't want to see that because I'd rather just kind of live in this mock reality that I've created for myself where I'm okay with it unless I have to confront what it really is. And that's where most Americans live because it's just easier to live in the middle on this issue than be hardcore pro-choice or hardcore pro-life. They're kind of in, eh, they're pragmatists on abortion. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I read the stats, I was honestly surprised that there was not a larger proportion of evangelicals who were profoundly committed to this. I mean, this is coming from me as someone who is personally deeply and profoundly committed to the pro-life position. I guess I just assumed I was going to see more people who fit that bill inside of evangelicalism and stats didn't bear it out. Let me ask another question off the abortion topic. This is the myth. College leads young people away from religion. Okay. College leads young people away from religion. Now I used to do college ministry and I saw college lead young people away from (laughs) religion. Now, did it lead most of them away? Certainly not, right? But I'm saying that was my anecdotal experience. And so we would often say, hey, your first six weeks at college are the most important six weeks because that's where you're going to make your friends. And if you don't make the right friends who are Christians, you will walk away from Jesus. And we saw this as kind of a dire real threat in people's spiritual lives because we didn't think people were probably going to come back from that, you know, when they were in their 30s or whatever else. But you said the data does not bear that out. So tell us the picture about college and young people. So... The people who go to college are actually more likely to be religious than people who don't go to college. So I looked at 18 to 22 year olds, so college age people, and I broke them into those who are in college, going to college, and those who stopped at high school. The share who stopped at high school, 50% of them are nuns. Can you define nun for us? Not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. No, N-O-N-E-S, right? Atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular, okay? And a big chunk of that is a group called Nothing in Particular, which is the largest religious group amongst young people today. Over a third of young people say they're nothing in particular, which is, by the way, there's a difference between being secular, which is what atheist agnostics are, and non-religious, which is what nothing in particular are. So a nothing in particular basically says about religion, they kind of just shrug their shoulders and go, meh. You know, like, I don't care either way. It's a none of the above option is what it is. Atheist agnostics have accepted a secular worldview, right? Which is like science and humanism and all those kind of things are good, right? If you look at the data, 40% of college-going 18 to 22-year-olds are nuns. It's 50% of non-college-going 18 to 22-year-olds are nuns. And if you look at the gap in atheist agnostics in those groups, it's exactly the same. So this whole idea of like, you're going to see a philosophy professor, like on God's Not Dead, it's like the ultimate trope, right? Like Kevin Sorbo is like this atheist philosophy professor, and it makes everyone have to like admit that God's dead so they can pass his class. That is such like a pernicious myth because evangelicals have an anti-intellectual bias, because I think the intellectuals hate them, which, by the way, is not exactly false. There's a lot of animus in the academy about evangelicals. I'll be the first to admit that. But at the end of the day, think about this. I can't make my students come to class. Many of them I might see in an entire semester less than 30 hours in a classroom, less than 30 hours. 
Think about how many hours you spend with your friends, with your roommates, with other people on campus. You spend six, eight, 10 hours a day. Those are the people that are changing their minds, not the professors in the classroom. Exposing them to different people is a very good thing because I actually argue it's called the inoculation effect, right? Like you get exposed to a challenge to your faith, but it doesn't destroy your faith. And therefore your faith becomes stronger after that. I think for lots of Christians who go to college, that's exactly what happens there. They're challenged, but their faith doesn't go away. It just get reshaped and reformed and they leave college still committed to the religious tradition they were raised in, maybe not as dogmatic as they were, but still committed to the idea that religion is good and they're going to maintain their religious convictions. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it presses back against a lot of different myths. I think you hit the nail on the head. If you are a serious Christian in college, there's going to be probably, especially go to a big state school like I did. I had multiple professors who showed me, I wouldn't say animus, that feels really way too strong, who showed strong resistance towards my views when I came into their office hours, but there was always respectful conversations. They didn't dislike me. They weren't trying to ruin my life. They were just trying to make me wrestle with things. And I think you were right. It inoculated me. But that's what I want to do as a professor though, right? Like my job is to inoculate you and test you. And honestly, I feel like part of my job when we have discussion about something is whatever position you take, I'm going to take the other position and, and argue it more smartly than you probably heard it before, because all your friends are giving you an echo chamber of like why Republicans are bad or why Democrats are bad. I got in a huge debate with my students about abortion. I'm like, you need to wrestle with the fact that a significant number of Americans believe sperm plus egg equal human. And if you end that life, you are murdering someone in the same way you're shooting someone in the head on the street outside. They can't accept that fact. Right. They can't grasp the reality of what the pro-life position really believes. Now, they say, well, I don't believe that. I go, yeah, but at some point, if you believe that we're letting people be murdered by the thousands in America, they don't like that. Just then you wouldn't like someone shooting someone in the head on the street. You wouldn't like that either. The problem is, and this is why college is beautiful, because I allow you and we create an environment where you can really grasp with the best arguments of the other side. What a beautiful place to be. You don't get that anywhere else in life, especially not in the church anymore, by the way. You know, I would love to have a separate episode where we talk about college culture, some of Jonathan Haidt's work around speech and all that. I'm sure you have opinions. Let's not go there. You're making me think about it. The other thing this whole myth presses against that I really appreciate is a notion I've heard from many people who are either nuns or secular, which is that those who are educated are less religious than those who are uneducated. And I've had people I love very dearly essentially tell me if the people who believed what you believed were actually intelligent, educated people, then I might believe it too. But the simple reality is you're just a bunch bunch of, you know, podunk backwoods farmers, and I don't want anything to do with you. I think the average atheist online is a 15-year-old kid who uses the phrase sky daddy a lot. Like, you believe in sky daddy. (laughs) I'm like, how patronizing are you, 15-year-old kid who think you know everything? They act like they've got it all figured out at 15 years old, and they want to try to prove to you why religion is bad. Anytime someone uses the word sky daddy when they, like, mention me on Twitter, automatic block guaranteed block because it's just such a patronizing way. If you look at the data, what you see consistently over and over again is more educated people are more likely to go to church and more likely to be religious than people who have lower levels of education. What we're seeing is really kind of like a bifurcation in American society where religion is seen as something, if you do everything right, you're religious, right? So if you go to college, if you get married, if you have kids, if you have a good, stable job, if you don't get divorced, then you're religious. And if you fall off that sort of narrow way, then you sort of slip into secularism or non-religion. I think that's actually what's happening more and more in America is there's nothing in particular group I was telling you about, which are about, you know, 25% of Americans today, the fastest growing religious group in America. They're terrifying because they have low incomes. 60% of them make less than $50,000 a year. That's poverty, right? So most of them live in poverty. Only 20% of them have a four-year college degree, which means they're not getting ahead in the information economy. They're not politically engaged. They're not socially involved. They're basically just floating in social space and they don't have religion either. 
those people are honestly terrifying. So what we have is like this whole growing group of people who are not secular, not atheist agnostic, nothing in particular, who have nothing they hold on to, are falling behind economically, socially, environmentally, everything else, while rich people and educated people are going the other direction. They have money. They have time. They have religion. They have social networks. They have social support. And I think that's really a lot of like the problems going on in America is the haves have a lot. And the have-nots have less now than ever. I wrote a piece for CT two years ago. You know, the data says the people who are leaving church the fastest are those in the bottom quartile of incomes in America. They're much more likely to be de-churched now than people that make the top quarter of incomes, which is really sad, by the way, because the church used to be like a safety net. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that has as much to do with economics as it does maybe social capital? It'd be silly to say it's one thing or the other thing. I think for a lot of people who are poor, they had to work three, four jobs and you know, church has become a luxury. And thinking for some of them, it has become a luxury. But if you think about what church is, you know what church people love to do? Help out church people. I'll tell you a story. I went to a Methodist church. We did prayers to the people where, you know, the pastor comes up and says, you know, anyone have any prayers? And we all kind of bow our heads and someone will say like, can you pray for my sister? She has cancer. And we say, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Well, one of the kids in the back was like 21 year old kid, had a baby and his wife was there. He said, could you all pray for me? I lost my job and I don't know how we're going to make rent this month. And we said, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. After church was over, one of the businessmen in the church comes up to that young man and says, hey, I've got a job for you if you want a job. And he had a job the next day. Which is beautiful and good. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you say you have a need and people meet your need. It's not like God comes down from heaven and like taps you on the shoulder and says, here's a job. He says, that guy has a job. He needs help. You know what I mean? Like that's how it works. But when you're outside of those social networks. Exactly. If you're outside the social network, you do not have that safety, that trampoline that you can bounce off of and get back into, you know, good graces economically and socially. That's the problem is the people who need church the most to help them trampoline up are not there and don't have those social supports. And they're really kind of falling through the cracks and falling further behind. Yeah, you know, it's funny in uh, Keith and I's forthcoming book that we're doing, we have a chapter where we talk about some of this. And I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this, but I said one of the best things that we could do for Americans in need is build more churches and stop shuttering their doors. We need more churches in rural environments because these are often the places where, whether or not you believe in Jesus, I mean, I think that matters tremendously. They are the places, they are the middle institutions where people are able to get access to some of the things that you just talked about. So I, I think the story you shared is beautiful. And of course, what I would want, and I think you would want too, is to see Christians also expand that outside of church doors. And I'm grateful to know there are lots of churches that seek to do that. But we know that within the network of known, connected relationships, there's going to be more of that that happens as opposed to outside of it. You bring up a great point, Patrick, which is think about the social safety net 20 years down the line when most mainline churches are closed or a huge portion of them are closed. (laughs) I see what you're doing there. (laughs) Think about that reality, right? I'll give you a great story. So I have two boys, one's 10 and one's seven. They go to public school. And I was asking my oldest son, you know, well, how was school? He goes, oh, it's fine. You know, the same old stuff. And I said, what was your favorite class? Today? He goes, oh, SEL. SEL is my favorite class. And I was like, SEL. I don't even know what that is. SEL. My wife's like, oh, it's social emotional learning. And I was like, what is that? We didn't have that when I was in school. So I had to go online and like figure out what it is. Right. And so I started asking Holden. I go, you know, what are you doing? SEL? He goes, oh, we meditate. We talk about our intentions. We try to work through our problems. We talk about how we're feeling. It's a way to, for us to think about ourselves, how we feel, and how we relate to other people. That is so interesting. Yeah. I was like, whoa. And I asked my seven-year-old, I go, do you guys do this? He goes, yeah, once a week we do it. And I love it too. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And I started thinking about that, right? Like, And I started looking at the literature online, like what SEL curriculum looks like. And I was like, I've read all this stuff before in church. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, it's church. It's church and school. <laughs> 
it's church and school. It's forgiveness and reconciliation and, and thinking about your intentions <laughs> and being you know purposeful yeah. in what you do, right? Being mindful of people around you, all those kind of being thankful for what you have, right? Things that we teach in church about how we should think about the world, the kingdom, and all those kind of things. And I go, why in the world? And I thought to myself, I know why they're doing this because most of these kids never go to church and they never get lessons on forgiveness and reconciliation and relationships. So now the church is losing its power because it's declining in American society. And so something has to pick up the slack and that's the school. Let's add a wrinkle to that. In Wisconsin, they just passed a bill that made SEL outlawed in the public school curriculum. You cannot teach SEL there. So they're not going to get it from church and they're not going to get it from school. Where are they going to get it from? Social media, obviously. I mean, that's where I learned forgiveness and reconciliation is off of Twitter. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. No more hot takes, just love and forgiveness, right? That's yeah. all I get there. Uh-huh. But you get my point though, right? Yeah. Like in a world where the Republican Party wants government to be smaller, they want something to fill in the void. Churches are not capable of filling in the void anymore because there's just fewer of them. So now all these kids are going to fall through the cracks. That future is no good. Like that's a bleak future. We need to figure out what the world looks like when the government's not getting bigger, but churches are not getting small. Like, you know, where, what do we do? I, I don't have an answer for that. And I think the problem is by the time we realize it's a crisis, it's already too late. You can't fix these problems in a year or two years or five years because it's taken 30 or 40 years to get here. Well, it's not just that. It's that it's building thriving institutions is tremendous, tremendous work, especially when you're living in a cultural moment that is almost across the board skeptical of institutions. But that's the only solution. You have to have institutions. <laughs> that's why we have to do it. I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to take you through a speed round here and get through the rest of my myths. Are you ready for this? I'm going to go. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the first one's related to what we're saying, and I wish we had more time because I'd like to interface it too. But this is the myth. The growth of the nuns, remember, these are not habit-wearing nuns. These are people who define themselves as not particularly religious. The growth of the nuns is largely from people leaving church. In other words, all these nuns, they're coming from churches. They're just leaving Jesus behind. The silent generation, which are people like born before World War II, right? So in 1925 to 1935. Biden's our only silent generation president. Fun fact. 71% of them are Protestant or Catholic. Okay, 71% Protestant or Catholic. Generation Z, which people were born in 1996 or later, so those people coming into adulthood every day, right? 37% Protestant or Catholic. So just think about what happens every day in America. Hundreds of people in silent generation are dying off, 71% Protestant or Catholic, and they're being replaced by people coming of age every year, 37% Protestant or Catholic. What we know is that people are being raised without religion much more than ever before. And I'm actually going to talk about this in the nuns version too when I get around to writing that, is that a third of young people today are moving into adulthood without religion. It used to be 10%, right? So now what's happening is, and by the way, the nuns retention rate used to be 33%. Now it's 66%, which means that two thirds of people raise nuns, stay nuns as adults. So they're not being raised with religion and they're just sticking with that the rest of their lives. So does that their parents de-church? Yes. Okay. So we're living in like the aftermath of the 1990s, right? The share of, of 18 to 35 year olds who said they were Christians dropped 13 points in eight years from between 1991 and 1998. It's an unbelievable change to happen. And we're living sort of in the after because like the Gen Z kids, the parents were coming of age in the 1990s and they're being raised without religion because their parents left religion when they were young people. And they're sort of not picking it back up because it's basically... The religion you're raised in is probably the most important predictor of what religion you are as an adult. And if you're raised without anything, you're not going to have anything as an adult either. All right. Next question in our little blitz here. This is the myth. Young evangelicals are more politically moderate than older evangelicals. Now, I have believed this myth. I used to do ministry to people in their 20s. We had about 500 people in small groups. I took over the job thinking I was going to get all these kind of moderate, maybe left-leaning evangelicals. And I quickly realized 
I was leading a safe space for conservatives. A Ben Shapiro support group. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. And I don't want to demean them. There's great, great, great people in there. My point, though, is that it was more conservative than I expected. I'm hard to pin down politically. It wasn't that I wanted liberal or this. It's just not what I expected. So walk us through this. Young evangelicals, they have to be more moderate than older evangelicals. I mean, just young people are more moderate than older people. But here's what you got to think about, right? If you are going to identify as an evangelical in the year of our Lord, 2022, and let's say you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you're going to be surrounded by, and the data says this, by the way, about a quarter of your classmates are not heterosexual. They identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or they don't want to say what they are. A quarter, okay, are LGBT. How can you say that you're evangelical when your tradition says that's wrong, that's sinful behavior, unless you really believe it to be true? So what you're seeing is the share of young people who are evangelicals is getting smaller, but it's like a concentrate in a reduction. You know, like when you make a reduction, like on the stove, you put a lot of liquid and spices in something and then you boil it and the amount of liquid goes down exponentially, but the flavor in that liquid goes up exponentially. That's exactly what we're seeing is all the moderate evangelicals have been boiled off and probably became nuns or maybe mainline Protestants, but they've left the tradition because they don't want to deal with all that stuff. The people who are left, young evangelicals today are as conservative as their grandparents are. Not their parents are actually more conservative than their parents are. They're as conservative as their grandparents are. And that actually creates this really interesting crisis where the average young evangelical is so far away from the average young person who's non-evangelical. How do you reach out to the other side when the other side is literally on the other side of the political landscape as you are? It becomes harder and harder as they become further apart on the political spectrum. So what you're saying is this is an issue of self-identification. Right. If I'm willing to identify myself as an evangelical, I've already sorted out a whole group of people who aren't even going to use that term for all the reasons you just listed. So if you're willing to go that far, you're going to be politically conservative. Does that also equal I'm a Republican or is it just I'm politically conservative on social issues? The Republican share of young people is exactly the same as this. I'm going to make a graph today, Patrick. You gave me an idea. So I would like to be tagged in that tweet as the original idea. All right. Two questions left. Let's do these really quick. Number one, you have to go to church frequently to be an evangelical. That's the myth. Yeah, that's the myth. I just participated in a debate with Andrew Walker in D.C. Oh, really? In, yeah, for the Gospel Coalition, where we debated what is an evangelical in the 21st century, basically. It should be a theological term. Should be a social is this online? I want to listen to this. Uh, June 1st. It's coming out June 1st okay. online um, on YouTube and things like that. It was actually really well produced and it's going to be a really interesting debate. But for me, the word evangelical now has become a social, cultural, political term, much more than a theological term. And if you look at never attending evangelicals, they're much more Republican than never attending Catholics or never attending mainline Protestants, which is telling you that the average American now sees evangelical and Republican is synonymous with each other. So what we're seeing is people are picking up the moniker for political reasons, which is going back to our first discussion, right? A partisanship being the first lens, everything's downstream with that. So now they're picking up evangelical because they say, I'm conservative. I'm a social conservative. Therefore, I'm an evangelical, even though I never go to church because I like what evangelicalism means. So for everyone who's been pushed away from evangelicalism, lots of people have been pulled in by what evangelicalism means. So I think it's actually a really interesting word because people think it's caustic, it's tarnished. It's not. It actually has brought a lot of people back to the fold because they like that whole social conservative, economic conservative, Republican, Trump, MAGA thing. And it's actually done very well because of that connotation it has. You have convinced me here. For a long time, I was in the more Tim Keller camp. You know, Bebbington's quadrilateral. That's how you define an evangelical. You know, you believe that the Bible is the word of God. You keep the cross and the atonement at the center of your theology. You have a kind of evangelistic activism. And I would also add at times social activism. These are core ideas that are part of what it 
it means theologically to be an evangelical, but your work and other work has really convinced me that now that term is a social and political moniker, which makes me deeply uncomfortable with using it. And yet I still sometimes call myself it because I know it's what other people call me, right? Because of some of my beliefs, I'm going to be called an evangelical. So the problem is like, well, I don't want to lose it because I'm going to be called it. So I'm already going to be grouped in with this group. And yet on the other side, I don't identify there. What theological evangelical is what you say? What? Like you add a modifier to the front. And I think that helps people know okay. that like what you're talking about is theology. Like we should really bifurcate, right? Cultural evangelicals versus theological evangelicals. Sometimes they overlap, but not always. If you add the modifier, I think the average person is going to know, okay, you're really a guy who believes in Jesus Christ, not just, you know, the Republican Party. That's, but I've actually talked to reporters, like national reporters who go, what do we do with evangelical now? Like, how do we mention it in the pages of our newspaper? I'm like, I don't know. You've got to come to grips with the idea that this word does not mean what it meant 20 years ago, and it never will go back. We need a new term. I, I know you're friends with Michael Graham, and he did a really, I think, important piece in Mere Orthodoxy where he talked about how evangelicalism is fracturing. And it was less sociological than it was philosophical, mm -hmm. and yet it rang true to my experience. And there is this group that he calls threes, he calls them neo-evangelicals, that kind of fit into this category who are going to be a mix of political partisanship, but that's not the thing that's in the foreground for them at all. Yeah. Uh, they are theologically, they keep their theology and kingdom ethics more in the foreground, and we need a term for this group because part of the problem is you can't become a group without a name, <laughs> right? Yes. You need a way of like, are you one of mine? You know, like, are we in the same camp here? Are we in a different camp? And we don't have it yet. And it makes it really hard because people in that camp are taking it from both sides. So, I mean, I feel like I'm in World War One in no man's land between the two trenches, and it's like, it doesn't matter which way to turn, I'm taking a bullet from someone, you know? But I know there's other people out there who are with me. Yeah, but remember J.D. Greer, he's the president of Southern Baptist Convention, he was the president yeah. of Southern Baptist Convention, like, let's change our name to Great Commission Baptists. That didn't take. You know what I mean? Like names stick and good luck changing the name because it just is what it is now. I don't want to change it. I just want a new name. I just want a term that can identify this new kind of person because I think if you have a name, it does help grow. Otherwise, we're just going to be stuck with this weird reality we're in right now where it's like evangelicals either end up being the social, political, cultural evangelicals or, you know, they end up going the deconstruction route and define themselves entirely as an antithesis to whatever evangelical was. I just want something else. I'm not a branding expert, but I'll think about it. <laughs> That's the problem. There's no good answer here. I mean, I love the debate though, because I was telling Andrew, like he's a theologian, right? So he thinks everything's vertical and I'm like a sociologist. So I think everything's horizontal, right? Words are socially constructed, not theologically constructed. And here's a little data point. So I scraped tweets in March of 2017 and then in December of 2018 with the word evangelical in them. The share that had Trump in them were 15% in March of 2017. It jumped to 30% by December of 2018. So in the minds of at least social media, Twitter is not real life, obviously, but it's a good sample of like what young people are talking about. You're seeing the linkage between evangelicalism and republicanism is growing stronger over time, which means the average person is not seeing that theological distinction anymore. And it's only going to get worse over time. I think. Someone responded to that and said, OK, yeah, but uh, it, it could be Democrats who are constantly lumping together evangelical Trump supporters. I mean, the people I hear say evangelical Trump tend to be on the left. Now, I'm with you. I think there is an attachment. So I'm not disagreeing with your point. I'm just wondering, is there a way for accounting for that? Oh, listen, I'll be the first to say Twitter is a weird like amalgam of very far left people and then very far right people and then everyone else in the middle trying to not get destroyed every day. And so it doesn't reflect real life, but I think Twitter's the most influential media platform and that all the reporters are on Twitter. Yes, I agree. You can post something on Facebook that might get more shares and more likes and stuff like that. It's not going to have the same cultural cachet as a tweet that goes viral, right? I've never had a Facebook post get picked up by the New York Times, but I've had Twitter posts that the New York Times reached out and said, would you like to write an op-ed about that? So it just shows you like that's where the conversation is happening on Twitter, even though it does not reflect what the average American thinks because only a small percentage of Americans are on Twitter, so...
Okay, last question. The myth is black Protestants are political liberals. They're moderates. A plurality of black Protestants, you ask them, are you liberal, moderate, conservative? Over 40% of them say they're moderate, and only a third of them say they're liberal. So the way you need to think about it is black Protestants are moderate Democrats. I, I know they vote 90% for Joe Biden in 2020. I fully understand that, okay? But they're not atheists. You got to make the distinction. Atheists are liberals. Agnostics are liberals. They're not liberals. They're moderates who just so happen to vote for Democrats because of things like economic issues. Actually, black Protestants on social issues are really kind of an interesting mix. On gay marriage, black Protestants look almost exactly like white evangelicals. So it's such a fascinating thing. Like theologically, there's not a lot of daylight between the average white evangelical and the average black Protestant on social issues, theological issues. But then when it comes to the voting box, they cannot be any more different in how they vote. You know, 80% of white evangelicals vote for Trump, 90% of black Protestants voted for Biden. But this is the problem that I have. And I say this to people all the time. They'll say, well, you can't be a good Christian and vote for Democrats. I'd say, well, what about Martin Luther King? Right. What about your black Protestant brothers and sisters who overwhelmingly vote for Democrats? There's a tradition in America where it says you can be a Christian and be a Democrat. That exists. And it's existed since the civil rights movement. It's the 1960s. We cannot like refute that idea. That's why, by the way, people get really mad. Like, why do you call them black Protestants? Why are they the separate category? Because they vote in such a different way than white evangelicals do. But they're not. Just to kind of put a bow on this, I think there's a real problem in the Democratic coalition right now. That's what I was going to ask. I'm glad you went here. So there's a real problem in the Democratic coalition right now. Here's what it is. The Republican Party has become the party of white Christianity. 75% of Republican voters are white Christians, Okay, which is a great thing from a, just a strategy standpoint because you only got to hit one note all the time. right? White Christianity is good. White people are good. Christianity is good. If you're a Democrat, your coalition is, think about it, it's like some mainline Protestants. It's fractured. Oh, my gosh. It's liberal Catholics. It's Hispanic Catholics. It's atheists and it's black Protestants and Muslims, right? So it's like this weird amalgam. So how do you move forward by keep, you can't keep the atheists happy and the black Protestants happy at the same time. I'll give you a good example. The Equality Act, right, which says that the churches basically would not be able to fire someone for being LGBTQ. Black Protestants hate that idea because they want churches to still have supremacy, you know, and things like hiring and firing in their own congregation. Atheists would love the Equality Act because they don't want churches to have any power in America. So how do Democrats move forward And their coalition is these people who really, really, really want the Equality Act and these people who really, really, really don't want the Equality Act? For Republicans, they're all opposed to it because they're all, you know, majority white Christian. The Democrats... See, here's the problem. The Republican problem is their coalition is getting smaller over time because white Christianity is basically declining. Because they're dying. Yeah, it's dying, right? The problem with the Democrats, though, is how big can the tent be before all the polls fall down? Those are both real problems. And the thing I wonder about in the future is, is there going to be a future where the Republican coalition features a large number of religiously unaffiliated voters? Because it's going to have to for them to have any chance at electoral success at the national level because you can't keep running on white Christianity over and over again because that's not going to sustain you in 10 or 15, 20 years. But how do you make those people happy, but also keep the Christian nationalists happy at the same time? I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. And, you know, I said some hopeless things. I am not very hopeful that there will ever be a third party in America. It's hard to change institutions that have lasted for this long. And while I realize the parties have changed and early on in America, there were multiple parties. The reality is we've lived in this Democrat Republican world for a long, long, long time. And yet I have hope because of what you just said about black Protestants, that there's not a lot of daylight between my social views and the average black Protestant social views. And that I know of a lot, and I know it's not a giant proportion, but I know a lot of people who previously identified as Republican or still think of themselves as conservative who are pro-immigration, who are pro the DREAM Act, who have a vision for, let's like Mitt Romney, support families and help make it easier to have families, make it easier to bring immigrants over. Like, let's get more people in this country. This is Matthew Iglesias, 
1 billion Americans. I think you could get, and they are very open to the racial conversation as well. And so I could see a coalition between these two deeply religious groups in many ways that could create something new. And I have hope for that. I just don't know if America can ever have a third party. It can't because of Duverger's law, Patrick. Do you know about this? <laughs> I don't. Tell me about this. It's just basic theorem that says in a situation where you have first past the post voting, which is what we have in America, right? If you get first, you win. If you get second, you get nothing. You're always going to have two parties because the parties are always going to eat the third party option because they realize like, you know why Al Gore lost in 2000? Because 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 Ralph Nader ran as a third party and sucked all Green Party votes. And that's why, you know, what happened in 2004? They sucked in the Green Party voters in the Democratic coalition because they realized if you're a Green Party voter, what's your worst outcome? It's the Republican winning, right? The best is your party winning. The second best is the Democrats winning. The third best is the Republicans winning. By you voting for a third party, you're actually getting the worst outcome. You know, these coalitions will kind of suck together and create two parties over time because that's the only way you can get electoral success. So then maybe you advocate for some of these new voting laws that allow you to have multiple choices that, you know, multi-ranked voting. I love that because maybe that allows this world to exist where we have more options. We would have to amend the Constitution, Patrick, and I don't know about you. Well, Maine does it in state-level elections, so maybe you start there. If you have a good state-level election system that allows those kinds of parties to take over particular states, I can imagine a world where you start having to have a different conversation. But I'm with you. I love that law. What was it called again? Duverger's law. Duverger. Well, He's a French fella. Yeah, look him up. It sounds French. I'm out on French. This is what I learned in my PhD program. So this is what all that time and money went to is learning about Duverger's law. Mm. Well, whatever the opposite of bonjour is, uh, I will wish you that. Adieu. Is that 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 the French goodbye? (laughs) That sounds right to me. No, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We got to have you back on because this was too much of a fun conversation. If you wouldn't mind, we love asking our guests to pray for our audience. Would you just pray for the state of our nation? And I don't know where your head and your heart's going to lead you (laughs) after the end of this wide ranging conversation, but would you pray for our audience? Pray for Christians here in America. I would love to. Dear Lord, we thank you for America, the beautiful, brilliant, terrible experiment that we are. Um, We thank you that we have different views in this country, people from different backgrounds. We thank you that we can have discussion, honest and open discussion in a country where we're not worried about persecution. We're not worried about, you know, being oppressed. We're not being worried about churches closing down. Please let us have open and engaging dialogue with each other, with open hearts and open minds, not ulterior motives, but just willing to see the truth and understand another person's point of view. We thank you that you created us all differently, that we can all have different opinions, and different approaches to life and, and, and data and society and academia and church and everything else, that we are better because of our diversity, not that we're worse because of our diversity. May we never forget that you've created us all in your image. May we never forget that we were created in the image and likeness of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.